0: Well, are y'all ready to get started? Yeah. So we're in First Chronicles 10 through 11 tonight. Our title is A Tale of Two Houses. We want to say to the saints that we're happy that you're here tonight. In fact, we're impressed that you're here tonight. After previously going through nine chapters of genealogies that took a little over two hours, you returned for more.
1: Ready?
2: Saints, tonight we have a special blessing for you. Last week was a blessing. Tonight is a special blessing. We will be covering chapters 10 and 11 together, and trust me, they're phenomenal.
3: Yeah. So tonight, to make good use of our time, we're not going to be reviewing tonight. Other than to remind you of the positioning of the book of Chronicles in the Tanakh. We want to remind you of its time of authorship and its emphasis. Amen. we got a slide to put on the screen for you. Just to remind you, as many of you well know, Tanakh is an acrostic. The first letter T stands for Torah, which is the law. And it pertains to the founding of Israel. The middle portion is the Nevi'im which is the prophets and it pertains to the promised land and going into captivity. This is the unified theme of the prophets. The last portion is the Ketuvim writings, and it's about how to live a faithful life in a historical con- context. And that's where we're at tonight. So if Chronicles comes last in the
0: Tanakh, then it's significant that this book relates how to live faithfully within your historical context.
2: We're going to see practically tonight together Our Chronicles will relate to our historical context, how that we might walk faithfully. You're going to see these kind of themes throughout it, where promises that God has made to his people, the writer of the Chronicle, reminds us of. He reminds them, uh, the people of Israel, he reminds them to his present day, and tonight he will be reminding us of it personally. Amen.
3: Justin, why don't you read that psalm for us? So I want to remind you of a psalm we've been kicking around as we've been studying Chronicles. And it's Psalm 119, verse 49 through 50. It says, remember your word to your servant, for you have given me hope. My comfort and my suffering is this, your promise preserves my life. In the book of Chronicles, we see the promise of God weaved all throughout the book. And it is preserving the life of a people. Amen. So we want to give you a slide again.
0: On the monarchy, I think it will help you start to put these books in place in your mind. When you're thinking of the monarchy in Israel's history, looking at the top of that timeline, you can see that Samuel, of course, precedes Saul. Saul precedes David. David precedes Solomon. In Solomon's day, we have the schism between the two kingdoms. The southern kingdom was identified in the scripture usually by the term Judah, and the Northern Kingdom by the term Israel, the Northern Kingdom went into captivity in Assyria in the seven hundreds, while the Southern Kingdom experiences no captivity until the Babylonian exile. Well, when you're looking at the books of First and Second Samuel, they are the story that starts with Samuel's life and takes us through the reign of Saul, and the entire book of Second Samuel is the life of David. As you move into Solomon's life, we are in 1 and 2 Kings, and 2 Kings, of course, has more to do with the schism between the northern and southern kingdom, which brings us to Chronicles at the bottom of the screen. Chronicles picks up in the life of David, and it focuses exclusively on the time period that goes from David until they have come out of the Babylonian Exile.
2: Considering that Chronicles is largely about that son of David, the way that it's organized in the Tanakh, it's at the end. And if it's not worried about the other kingdom, it is worried about the Davidic dynasty. It makes it a perfect introduction for the Newer Testament. Its authorship takes place after the events of this time period, and its content reminds you of the promises of God so that you can walk faithfully in your historical context. You understand what I mean by that? The writer was not writing this during the events. He's chronicling it afterwards, looking at the promises of God. And it reminds them in that time of his promises and reminds us now of those promises. We want to take a look at the first
3: and last verses of Chronicles together. So in the first verse, 1 Chronicles 1, through 1-3... It gives the, starts the genealogy. Adam, Seth, Enosh, Kenan, Mahalalel, Jared, Enoch, Methuselah, Lamech, Noah. It starts with those genealogies we studied last week. The last verse of Second Chronicles, which is the last verse of the writings in the Tanakh, says this. Verse 23. This is what Cyrus, king of Persia, says. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build a temple for him, at Jerusalem in Judah any one of his people among you may the Lord his God be with him and let him go up now knowing that this was originally one book it should encourage you that the promises of God trace from Adam all the way through the Babylonian captivity and were irrevocable to the house of David that is why the chronicler is writing this passage to say that the promise is not going away and it goes right into the book of Matthew which picks up with the Davidic son. God promised it, the word states it, and that settles it. The book of Chronicles is there to remind us of this. Amen. In preparation for jumping into the 10th chapter, let's revisit one last slide. You'll put that on the screen? Yeah, summary of the
0: two kingdoms. Wow, my highlight didn't do very well there, huh? <laughs> the northern kingdom of Israel, uh, often thought of as the northern 10 tribes, had 19 different kings that only reigned for 250 years. In those 250 years, it passed through seven different family lines. In other words, to get those 250 years reigning, it took seven different families. Well, the southern kingdom that our book is about tonight, it it is constructed differently. There's 20 kings... They reign for between 370 years to 440 years, depending on where we start our count from. And there is a singular family, just one. This book is the story of that family, and it is the story of the Messianic line. (coughs) When you consider that, Chronicles is all about David and his family. Saul rules for some 40 years, But David's dynasty rules for roughly 400 years. Come on, on. contrast that. Do you want to do it your way, your family alone, and then it'll have to be some other family, or would you like to raise up a family that, for four centuries, affects the earth? Because that's what happened. We want you to notice as we read tonight that we are going to be transitioning between two houses. That's why we titled this "A Tale of Two Houses." We're going to talk about the transition from Saul to David's house. Of course, all of the emphasis will be on the house. Somebody say, the house? The, the house. house. That God established. And with that, you know what's going to happen now. Miss Jennifer gets to read chapters 10 and 11. She's been practicing all day. Her Hebrew pronunciation and enunciation will be perfect. We'll judge her diction. We'll 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 go over um, the fluid nature of what she's going to give and give her a uh, a grade afterwards. Uh, wow. We appreciate written assessments. <laughs> so first chronicles chapter 10 verse 1.
4: Now the Philistines fought against Israel. The Israelites fled before them and many fell slain on the mount Gebal. The Philistines pressed hard after Saul and his sons, and they killed his sons Jonathan, Abinadad, and Malchiah Shua. The fighting grew fierce around Saul, and when the archers overtook him, they wounded him. Saul said to his armor-bearer, Draw your sword and run me through, or these uncircumcised fellows will come and abuse me. But his armor-bearer was terrified and would not do so. So Saul took his own sword and fell on it. When the armor bearer saw that Saul was dead, he too fell on his sword and died. So Saul and his three sons died, and all his house died together. When all the Israelites in the valley saw that the army had fled and that Saul and his sons had died, they abandoned their towns and fled, and the Philistines came and occupied them. The next day, when the Philistines came to strip the dead, they found Saul and his sons fallen on Mount Gilboa. They stripped him and took his head and his armor and sent messengers throughout the land of the Philistines to proclaim the news among their idols and their people. They put his armor in the temple of their gods and hung up his head in the temple of Dagon. When all the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead heard of everything the Philistines had done to Saul, all their valiant men went and took the bodies of Saul and his sons and brought them to Jabesh. Then they buried their bones under the great tree in Jabesh, and they fasted seven days. Saul died because he was unfaithful to the Lord. He did not keep the word of the Lord, and even consulted a medium for guidance, and did not inquire of the Lord. So the Lord put him to death, and turned the kingdom over to David, son of Jesse. All Israel came together to David at Hebron and said, We are your own flesh and blood. In the past, even while Saul was king, you were the one who led Israel on the military campaigns. And the Lord your God said to you, You will shepherd my people, Israel, and you will become their ruler. When all the elders of Israel had come to King David at Hebron, he made a compact with them at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel, as the Lord had promised through Samuel. David and all the Israelites marched to Jerusalem, that is, Jebus. The Jebusites who lived there said to David, you will not get in here. Nevertheless, David captured the fortress of Zion, the city of David. David had said, whoever leads this attack on the Jebusites will become commander-in-chief. Joab, son of Zeruah, went up first, and so he received the command. David then took up residence in the fortress, and so it was called the city of David. He built the city around it from the supporting terraces to the surrounding wall, while Joab restored the rest of the city. And David became more and more powerful because the Lord Almighty was with him. These were the chiefs of David's mighty men. They, together with all of Israel, gave his kingship strong support to extend it over the whole land, as the Lord had promised. This is the list of David's mighty men. Joshua, the chief of the officers, he raised his spear against 300 men who <coughs> were killed in one encounter. Next to him was Eleazar son of Dodai, of Pohai, one of the three mighty men. He was with David at passed them in when the Philistines gathered there for battle. At a place where there was a field full of barley, the troops fled from the Philistines. But they took their stand in the middle of the field. They defended it and struck the Philistines down, and the Lord brought about a great victory. Three of the thirty chiefs came down to David at the, to the rock at the cave of Adullam, while a band of Philistines was encamped in the valley of Rephraim. At that time, David was in the stronghold, and the Philistines were encamped. In, I'm sorry, Philistines garrison was at Bethlehem. David longed for water and said, Oh, that someone would get me a drink of water from the well near the gate of Bethlehem. So the three broke through the Philistine lines, drew water from the well near the gate of Bethlehem, and carried it back to David. But he refused to drink it. Instead, he poured it out before the Lord. God forbid that I should do this, he said. Should I drink the blood of these men who went at the risk of their lives? Because they risked their lives to bring it back. David would not drink it. Such were the exploits of the three mighty men. Abisha, the brother of Joab, was the chief of the three. He raised his spear against 300 men whom he killed, and so he became as famous as the three. He was doubly honored above the three and became their commander, even though he was not included among them. Benaiah, son of Jehoiada, was a valiant fighter from Hasbiel, who performed great exploits. He struck down two of Moab's best men. He also went down into a pit on a snowy day and killed a lion. Mm. And he struck down an Egyptian who was seven and a half feet tall. Although the Egyptian had a spear like a weaver's rod in his hand, Benaiah went against him with a club. He snatched the spear from the Egyptian's hand and killed him with his own spear.
1: Amen. Such
4: were the exploits of Benaiah, son of Jehoiada, he, too, was as famous as the three mighty men. He was held in great, greater honor than any of the 30, but he was not included among the three, and David put him in charge of his bodyguard. The mighty men were Asahel, the brother of Joab, Elhana son of Dodo, from Bethlehem, Shammoth, the Hararite, Helez, the Pelonite, Ira, son of Ikesh from Tekoa, Abazir from Ennah, Sibikiah from Hushathite, Eliah the Hoahite, Maharai the Netapathite, Haled son of Bana from Netapathite, <coughs> Ithiah son of Riba from Gideah and Benjamin, Banaya the Perithonite, Pariah from the ravines of Gaash, Abiel the Arbathite, Osmethetheth from I, Elishaba the Shalmonite, the sons of Hashem the Gizanite, Jonathan son of Shagi the Harite, Ahayim, son of Sakar the Horite, Elifa son of Ur, Hefer Hefir from Hefier the Merithite, Ahajab from Pelonite, Hezro the Carmelite, Nari son of Ezbai, Joel the brother of Nathan, Mithhabar, son of Hagarai, Zeleg, the Ammonite, Naharai, the Barathite, the armor bearer of Joab, son of Zeruah, Ira, the Ithrathite, Gareb, the Ithrathite, Uriah, the Hittite, Zabad, son of Ahalai, Adin- Adina, son of Sh- uh, Shiaz, the Reubenite, who was sheep of the Reubenites, and the 30 with him, Hanan, son of Makkah, Jehoshaphat, the Mithonite, Uziah the Ashtorethite, Shama the Shama and Jael the son of Hotham, the Aroite, Jaddiel son of Shemri, his brother Joah the Tizite, Eli the Mahavite, Jerubai and Joshaviah the son of Alam, Yithma, the Moabite, Elel Obed and Jessiel. The Mezzolite. Right, oh,
1: yeah. so- <laughs> uh,
2: that is an appropriate place for a gratuitous round of applause.
1: <laughs>
2: Later we're going to repent for how much we enjoyed having you read that instead of us. since we obviously have a versatile cu- passage to cover tonight. We have, I promise this is going to get increasingly good as we go. We're going to begin to buckle down. We're going to go verse by verse and engage with us. And I promise what the Lord has in store for us this evening will change the way that you look at the world. Gabriel, will you read the first six verses of chapter 10 for me?
5: Now the Philistines fought against Israel. The Israelites fled before them, and many fell slain on Mount Gilboa. The Philistines pressed hard after Saul and his sons. And they killed his sons, Jonathan, Abinadab, and Malkishua. The fighting grew fierce around Saul. And when the archers overtook him, they wounded him. Saul said to his armor bearer, Draw your sword and run me through, or these uncircumcised fellows will come and abuse me. (laughs) But his armor bearer was terrified and would not do it. So Saul took his own sword and fell on it. When the armor bearer saw that Saul was dead, he too fell on his sword and died. So Saul and his three sons died, and all his house died together. Wow.
2: Somebody say wow. 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 I am growing in my appreciation for the Chronicles, chronicler's ability to be brief about certain subjects. We have 40 years of Saul's kingship summed up in six verses that is his death. Somebody say amen that we're not spending all night in Salt. Amen. 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 The house of Saul comes to a tragic end in the first six verses of chapter 10. And his entire household died together with him. From the viewpoint of the chronicler, which happens to be God's viewpoint, yeah. none of the good things that Saul has done previously are worth mentioning or going over or recording. He gets six verses before he's dead because that's all that he was good for in this passage. Its most significant contribution to the plan of God was that he died so that the kingdom of God could progress and
0: the Davidic son take on his reign. Can you imagine that? <laughs> 40 years of a reign and your most significant contribution is you died so that we could move on with God's plan? Wow. Six verses. That's, that is how the chronicler presents this. Makes me think of a few relatives of mine. <laughs> I want, to, I want to suggest to you that the Bible gives us the answer and the template for why the chronicler did this. So, Bim, why don't you read Ezekiel 18 and read verse 24.
6: Ezekiel 18, verse 24. But if a righteous man turns from his righteousness and commits sin... And does the same detestable things the wicked man does? Will he live? None of the righteous things he has done will be remembered, because of the unfaithfulness he is guilty of, and because of the sins he has committed, he will die.
0: Uh, that is a little bit scary, isn't it? Yeah. You shouldn't think that Saul was always wicked. He wasn't. Those of you that went through First and Second Samuel with us, you you should know that. He was changed into a different person. He prophesied. He he had many good things going on. None of them recorded in Chronicles because that's not how his life finished. Now that may not seem particularly fair to you. Something about it may offend your senses. A few of you flinched when I mentioned relatives. But it's important that you consider this feeling that you have very carefully. Especially in the context of your own family in the context of your own life, and in the context of the Holy Scripture. While you're thinking about that, let's finish Ezekiel's thought. Bim, pick up in verse 25 and read through 29.
6: Yet you say, the way of the Lord is not just. Here, O house of Israel, is my way unjust? Is it not your ways that are unjust? If a righteous man turns from his righteousness and commits sin, he will die for it. Because of the sin he has committed, he will die. But if a wicked man turns from the wickedness he has committed and does what is just and right, he will save his life. Because he considers all the offenses he has committed and turns away from them, he will surely live. He will not die. Yet the house of Israel says, the way of the Lord is not just. Are my ways unjust, O house of Israel? Is not your ways that are unjust? What a great question. Is it
0: God's ways who are unjust? No. God is not unjust. Men who would misuse the grace of God, they are the ones that are unjust. Jude 4 teaches us this. They change the grace of God into a license for immorality. Look, the wages of sin is certainly death. These wages are often more
3: widely dispersed than government stimulus checks. (laughs) Now tonight, we're not going to talk about the great cost of Saul's sin in these next few verses, but it is is important for you to keep in mind. There's a reason why the chronicler is doing this. He is demonstrating the death of Saul so that he can transition to something. This starts with a death in the first six verses so that we can get to the life of David. This kind of mirrors our story as well. We have got to start at death so that we can transition into life. The Come same on. thing must happen in each of us. Yeah, your word. I want to hand out a few verses on this topic. Who wants to read? Get your hands up. Rob, you read Matthew sixteen twenty-four through twenty-five. Nolan, you read Romans six four. Justin Linton, Galatians two twenty. Josiah, you take Galatians five twenty-four. Micaiah. You take Galatians 6:14. Tisdale, you're going to read Galatians 2:11 through 12, and these are on the topic of dying, so that we may live.
5: Matthew 16:24 through 25. Then Jesus said to his disciples, "If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it." Whoever loses his life for me will find you.
3: You see the opposites there? If you want to save your life, you lose your life. You have to die. Sinful Saul must die inside of you. His kingdom in you must die. That is how the Davidic son saves your life. This is the entryway into the kingdom. The entryway into the Davidic
5: covenant. Romans 6, 4. We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life.
2: See, this is a concept that for many people remains a theological concept. It says that we were baptized into death so that we might live with Christ. See, our experience with the son of David must be predicated upon the dying of the sinful reign of Saul in our own lives. It begins when everything about our old way of life passes away so that we can begin building the kingdom of God. We don't get to hold on to both. We are now working on a whole new endeavor, a whole new dynasty. This is the point that the chronicler understood. Something must die for us to see David begin to rise. Mm -hmm. Why don't we go ahead and grab Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ
5: lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me,
0: See, Saul must no longer live. That begs the question, that little bit of tension that you felt earlier when I was talking about my relatives and then asked you to examine your life. Has there truly been a transition in your life that you can say Saul is dead? Are you just hiding him from your brothers and sisters in your pocket or your phone or your laptop or in conversations outside of church? Because you cannot have the reign of David while Saul is still living.
3: Somebody, who's got Galatians 5, 24?
6: And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with his passions and desires.
3: I want to read that again for you. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the sinful nature. They've done what? Have. Have. (laughs) This is not a sanctification process. This is what what starts when you are in Christ Jesus. You crucify the Saul-like sinful nature. And if that is not crucified, then you do not belong to the Davidic dynasty. You can't have two kings reigning on the same throne when God has promised that this king must reign. Chronicles was written to show you how to be faithful in your historical context. Let's go to Galatians 6, 14. Who has it?
6: Far be it from me to boast except in the
0: cross. Go ahead and stand up and walk over here and read it. Yeah, read it. Read it, read it where they can hear you in the very back. You're like seven feet tall. They should hear you. <laughs> but far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me
2: and I to the world. Through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. See, Saint's Galatians and other writings, it's intended to instruct the way that we live faithfully. And it's funny how well it pairs with the story that Chronicles lays out. See, the transition in your life begins with Saul's reign ending so that the Davidic son can reign. And that is the only thing that is worth bragging about. It is the only thing worth holding on to. It is the only thing that is worth your attention, your expectation, or your pursuit. All too often, we have a way of holding on to these little items and eccentricities that we just think, oh, well, that's just my personal preference. We want to start tonight by saying that for us to experience the fullness of the Davidic kingdom, there is no way other than being completely crucified to the world, completely crucified to Saul's kingdom, and us to the world as well. See, removing yourself from Saul's kingdom but longing to be there is one thing. Removing yourself from Saul's kingdom and killing him as well is different. What we want is not to be men that are tied to a mask, listening to siren sounds, men who are bragging about the work of Christ inside of us. We encourage you to make your position clear tonight. We love you. We're family all in this room. And we also, like family, can say very bluntly that for many of you sitting staring at us now, your transition is not completely clear. You still have areas where Saul is king in your life and you're still living in his kingdom. You cannot inherit eternal life that way. You must put it to death entirely where you are crucified to the world. Is Saul's world crucified to you? Or do you still consult his kingdom in areas? Do you meditate on his mediums? Is his sin something that you are currently sitting in? We don't want you to be redacted from history. We want you to be remembered. Not as somebody who was a compromiser and held on to Saul's life and his workplace and his worldly wisdom and his fear and his dealing with his relatives. We want you to be those that are fully crucified to the world, fully crucified to Saul and able to live with the Davidic son.
0: Now We're going to read Colossians, but I want to tell you, we're not trying to intellectually stimulate you right now. So chewing your lip a little bit and nodding yes is not at all the same as putting Saul to death. The truth is, is if every time your name comes up in a conversation, it's because Saul has been reigning over you, you got some work to do. You have to get all the way outside of his kingdom before you can ever do great exploits. Saul should be the rare exception in your life, not the defining factor. Amen. Now, if you're here tonight, it has to be because you want to go further. Yeah. Wanting is not enough, though. You acknowledge that you need to go further. That acknowledgement is not enough. There's going to have to be a crucifixion in your life so that there can be a resurrection. And if you are still hiding and planning to sin, how could you ever say that it was crucified? Mm. Let's do Colossians 2. Did we hand out 2, 11 through 12? Read it, at Tisdale, like the beard that you have on your face. Doesn't Tisdale <laughs> have a nice beard? Yes, it does. <laughs>
6: Done by the hands of men,
4: but with the circumcision done by Christ. Having been crucified with him
5: in baptism and raised with him through your faith in the power
6: of God, who raised him from the dead.
0: Mm. So you can sum up your own life under Saul's reign in less than six verses. <laughs> there was a battle, and I died. That's really how that should go. There is a battle and I died. Human effort had nothing to do with it. How did you die, you might be asked. Well, sinful Saul in my life committed suicide. Strangely, tonight, we want to invite you to a kind of suicide. We want you to have Saul's sinful nature go ahead and commit suicide on the crucifixion site. There's no reason for him to continue. The rest of your story, when you walk out of here tonight, the rest of your chronicle, it really should be about the reign of the Davidic son in your life. It's time to let Saul's sinful reign die because you let him commit suicide inside of you. And whatever little last gasp of breath there were begging for an armor bearer to put him to death, Now, you're just going to let him die through neglect. You're going to turn and walk the other way from him, and he will starve to death right there. Stop feeding him, and he'll stop living. Would y'all
3: like to pick back up in the text? Amen. Gabe,
5: read verse 7 for us, if you will. When all the Israelites in the valley saw that the army had fled, and that Saul and his sons had died, they abandoned their towns and fled, and the Philistines came and occupied them.
3: Now, that's a huge problem there, isn't it? Yeah. Any area that Saul had, when him and his sons died, they <laughs> left that area completely, and new inhabitants came and took them over. Maybe Saul was just a bad leader. You know, maybe he just raised up bad men. Or could it be the fact that David or Saul didn't realize that he had divine power to demolish strongholds, and he just did not walk in it? because of his sinful nature, realize that any area that Saul failed and uh, to observe God's word and fled became occupied by the Philistines. Wow. Any area that he held became occupied by the enemy and it became their stronghold. They used it as a position of strength against the people of God because of what Saul failed to do. Have you ever heard the term
0: deliverance ministry? Yes. Yes. You ever heard people talk endlessly about strongholds? I'm all for deliverance. I'm all for the destruction of those strongholds. As long as they're not your great granddaddy's fault. Let's be honest. The strongholds that exist in your life are areas where Saul has reigned and he did not take into account God's word. And you are going to have to put him to death so that there can be a new king in that area. No more talking about genealogies. No more talking about what your mama did or didn't do for you. It is about your sinful nature, not about anybody else's. There is
3: a solution, though. The solution is to let the sinful Saul nature die. Allow the reign of the Davidic son. Welcome him onto the throne. And like 2 Corinthians ten four, he will give you power to demolish strongholds. Divine power. Gabe, would you
0: pick up in verse 8 and read down to verse 10? Read it real loud so we can hear the details. Take your time. Well, Gabe's gathering himself to do that. I want to suggest to you that stronghold sounds like such a spiritual term. Oh, I'm just trying to deal with a stronghold in my life. Why don't you call it a sinful infestation? Then you won't celebrate it. You'll go in and destroy it.
5: The next day, when the Philistines came to strip the dead, they found Saul and his sons fallen on Mount Gilboa. They stripped him and took his head and his armor, and sent messengers throughout the land of the Philistines to proclaim the news among their idols and their people.
2: Read that one more time for me.
5: To proclaim the news among their idols and their people. Okay, read through 10. They put his armor in the temple of their gods and hung his head in the temple of Dagon.
2: Saints, the passage that we were reading is about a man that was once righteous but has become compromised. And when he falls and gives way to the enemy, he creates a stronghold that the enemy now occupies. And then his body becomes a trophy put in the house of Dagon. And where was the news proclaimed? All right, one more time until we're all awake. Where was the news
1: proclaimed?
0: Look, I got to jump in on this. It's a very small technicality. His body was not hung in the temple of Dagon, his body was stuck to a gate outside Bet Shin, a city wall. They made maximal use of this man's sinful, wicked failure. They took his body and hung it on a city wall, but took his head and put it in the temple of their God. The enemy will exploit every area that you do not live in God's rule and dominion.
2: Saints, we're going to hand out a few passages that are familiar. And I want you to consider it in light of what we just read. You remember in Samuel, there was a young boy that took the head of a giant and did something with it. See, there is an enemy that is prowling around that wishes to do something very similar. Pat, will you get Ephesians 3.10? Pastor Matthew, would you read Ephesians 6, 12 through 13 for us? Yes, sir. Just get verse 12. That'll be enough. Okay. Who wants Colossians two fifteen? I do. Gabriel Arias. Ephesians 1, 21 through 23. JJ. Ephesians 5, 8 through 11. Steve. Pat, you can pick up with Ephesians three ten when you're ready.
5: Um, His intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rules and the authorities of the heavenly realm.
2: His intent was that now, the church might do this. This was his intent. This was the desire of God. This was what he was aiming at. This is why we were put upon the earth. But the sad reality is that the reign of Saul, a once righteous man that had been muddied like a spring polluted, had only served to encourage the enemies of God. In fact, his downfall was preached among their gods, proclaiming the virtues of Dagon, proclaiming the virtues of an unholy life. See, this is what it looks like when men of God give way to the wicked and they give up their purpose on the earth. See, you were made to participate in a spiritual war that Matthew's about to tell us about. But when we give way, the exact opposite happens. See, your life matters, saints. There's something hanging in the balance in kingdoms that are pushing against kingdoms. Ephesians 6.12 For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms.
3: See, it's an amazing thing that God can use the church, his people, to teach a message to the heavenly realms. That's an incredible thing, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. But because the, the heavenly realms are seeing something out of his people, you know what they like to do? They like to exploit your soul like sinful situation. They like to exploit you in your weakness. They will take your sinful nature and they will broadcast it among their idols, amongst their gods, so that they can cheer and look at what they did. To the people of God. If you behave like Saul. You are satisfying the spiritual forces of evil. They are looking at you and saying. Hey we want another one. Mm. What's Colossians 2.15 say. Did we hand that one out. You know why don't I just read it. Having disarmed the
0: powers. And authorities. He made a public spectacle. Of them. Triumphing over them. By the cross. Both Jesus and David disarmed these powers they didn't satisfy them by sinning with them both jesus and david made a public spectacle of these powers and you're called to do exactly the same thing
2: Amen. Amen. same subject i'm gonna to read to you ephesians 121 far above all rule and authority power and dominion and every title that can be given not only in the present age but also in the age to come And God placed all things under his feet. Whose feet is that, saints? Jesus. Jesus. And appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Saints, Jesus is that son of David. He is the Davidic king that is being described here. Both Chronicles and the Epistles set out to show the supremacy of the Davidic son over the forces that savage those trapped in Saul's behavior. In fact, he's looking to show his supremacy in this very room while some of you sit here savaged by Saul's behavior when you could be free in reigning with David. More than that, where was Saul's head hung? We mentioned it just a moment ago. It was hung in the temple of Dagon. We are looking to free you from the trappings of the enemy that he has set for you. It is a totally different perspective when you realize the things that you did in darkness that you hid that no one's, you think no one saw that the heavens were rejoicing that were not pure, that there are spiritual forces and powers yeah. that are watching you and celebrating your head being hung on a wall. Right. I say we get rid of it tonight. Yeah. We stand up and kill Saul and reign to David. Yes. No more public spectacles being made of you. Right. You sit with Christ and see his name, his honor, reign high above all other power.
0: Yeah. Would you like to see some condensed truth? Yeah. Yes. You ready for it? Yes. If you do not crucify your sin in private, then you will be crucified
3: by your sin in public. True. Ephesians 5, 8 through 11 says, for you were once darkness, past sins. You were once darkness, but now you are the light in the Lord. Live as children of the light for the fruit of the light consists in all goodness, righteousness and truth. And find out what pleases the Lord. Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. Oh, come on. You see, the truth about Saul's state, it didn't start in six verses. It started a long time ago when he started disobeying the Lord, and then he hid it. When he started trusting in his own flesh, and then he hid it. When he started doing wicked things, and then he hid it, and it compounded and compounded. You have to know, you have to be sure... That your sin will always find you out no matter what. The Lord will discipline those that he loves. And I will tell you that discipline is harsh when you do not respond to it the first time. When you are doing fruitless deeds in darkness, you are proclaiming to the heavens that the Davidic sun is not satisfying enough. That my version of success is better. That I would prefer it my own way. When you are proclaiming those things to the heavens, God does not allow it to go on forever. He will drag it into the light for you if you don't do it yourself. You have to know that your sin will find you out one way or another. Whether you willingly confess, whether you willingly lay down your sinful state or God does the job for you. But I promise you, there will be no mercy involved in that process. It will be painful. So we have to crucify that Saul like sinful state. Anytime we see it, there's no excuses that we can give if we. Find one area, one bit of leaven that we're not supposed to have. We just get rid of it immediately. Amen. That is our joy. That is our honor that we get to do that before it's too late.
2: Saints, are you going to live in the light with us tonight? Yes. yes. you Are going to be children that are overcoming the
5: darkness? Yes. yes.
2: Let's keep reading together. We're going to pick up in an 11 and read through 14.
5: Gabriel. When all the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead heard of everything the Philistines had done to Saul. All their valiant men went and took the bodies of Saul and his sons and brought them to Jabesh. Then they buried their bones under the great tree in Jabesh, and they fasted seven days. Saul died because he was unfaithful to the Lord. He did not keep the word of the Lord and even consulted a medium for guidance and did not inquire of the Lord. So the Lord put him to death and turned the kingdom over to David, son of Jesse.
0: Look, writing 500 years after the fact, the chronicler says it succinctly. Saul died because he was unfaithful to the Lord. I love that he can sum that up so easily. The same summary can be given about every man who ever lived. Saul rejected the Lord. Therefore, Saul felt the rejection of the Lord. He resorted to inquiring of a medium because he didn't think God would answer him anymore. Why wouldn't God answer him anymore? Because he hadn't done the first thing God told him to do. There is a powerful lesson to learn there. And the chronicler is giving it to us In just the right amounts. There's no reason to talk endlessly about why Saul is the way that he is. Let's call it what it is. He was unfaithful. I hope that you're assessing your life right now. That's that's our intent. The text says both that Saul fell in battle with the Philistines and that the Lord put him to death. God is sovereign. He's able to use ignoble tools for noble purposes. He will raise up one nation to chastise another. In this very book, we're going to see something attributed to the Lord that in another book is attributed to the devil. God is bigger than you think that he is. Now that we are done with Saul, somebody say, done. Done. I want you to remember something. Saul's major contribution to this story is that he died. I hope you take something from that. Sometimes the best thing that can happen is that a sinful king just died. Get out of the way. When you do this in your own life, it will let you take a deep breath and invite the Davidic son spirit right into you Amen. so that you can reign. Amen. But something has to die before resurrection life can enter. And I'm a pastor or an elder or something, whatever it is that I am. And looking at this group that I love and I think is extraordinary. Some of you are pretending to walk like David... And you know that the majority of your life looks exactly like Saul. And it's not difficult to discern. Look at the last week or two or month of your life. Just because your mama says nice things about you doesn't mean that you're living faithfully to the Lord. It just means that you're a successful liar. And we don't want that. What we want is Saul to die so that David can reign in you. Would y'all like to pray for a minute? Yes. yes. Let's pray for the power to crucify the flesh. Father, we're asking in here right now that your spirit of holiness would invade this room. And from our little biddies in here, all the way up to our old biddies in here. Lord, we're asking that you would highlight what must die, what stronghold must be torn down. What sinful infestation must be driven out that we might invite the son of David to come and reign in our lives. We Amen. want you, mighty God. We must have you now. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. Are you ready to dive
2: into chapter 11? Yes. As we prepare to enter into the reign of David in chapter 11, I want to highlight to you that the Chronicler intentionally put the content of chapter 10 and 11 side by side. He wanted you to draw a contrast between these two houses, one that would perish and one that would continue to eternal life. For context, we want to begin with a very specific psalm, and I think it's fitting that we have the Lion King Assad back here read it for us. This psalm was written by one of David's sons who grew up in his house and saw the way that they lived. Asad, if you would just read the entire chapter, man, of Psalm 127. Get all six verses.
3: Yes.
0: If you haven't noticed, we're calling revelry tonight.
6: Yeah.
0: We are blowing the shofar, the bugle of God, because mighty men will raise from this house. Amen. Amen. Psalm 127 is a blueprint. Help us out, Asad. Psalm
6: 127. Mm-hmm. Unless the Lord builds the house, Labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchers stand guard in vain.
0: In vain he tries earth and stays a place, toiling for food to eat, for he grants sleep to those he loves. Sons are inherited to the Lord, children, they reward from him, like arrows in the hands of a
1: warrior. Come on, our sons born in one. Yeah. In fact, blessed is the man whose quiver
5: is full of hope. Amen. They will not be put when they with their enemies in the gate. Saints, this is an
2: extraordinary passage. This psalm describes the fruit of a righteous house, a house that God is pleased with and that he is determined to establish for his own honor. This psalm is going to form the tenor for the
3: majority of our time in the book of Chronicles. Remember that the book is a record of the house of David. All right, we've said that many times. But like any house begins, it has to start with a marriage. We're going to see some wedding imagery come in a bit. But I want to remind you that the psalm is written by a son of David. Think about that for a second. Come on. We're talking about David's house. Psalm 127 is written by who? Solomon. Solomon. This is Solomon seeing how his own house, his father's house, and his son's house being built. Amen. Solomon gained this insight by being part of the household of mighty sons born to and discipled by David. He saw everything of his father's life, everything he fa- his father built, and he wrote this psalm. This psalm is going to kind of highlight some themes in our entire studies of the Chronicles. Amen. All right? Throughout the book of Chronicles, we will be able to glean from the historical context regarding how God will build our houses So we're going to see something in in there for us. Single men, single women, leap for joy. Say amen because we're we're going to see how God chooses to build a house. Fathers, mothers, rejoice. We're going to see how God builds a house. All right. As we do this, consider the differences between the house of Saul and the house of David for a minute. Remember, the house of Saul reigned for 40 years. The house of David reigns for over 400 and into eternity. So tell me, which house do you want to build like here? David's.
0: Come on, let's hop into the text of chapter 11. So who was reading earlier? Get it, Gabriel.
5: All Israel came together to David at Hebron and said, we are your own flesh and blood. In the past, even while Saul was king, you were the one who led Israel on their military campaigns. And the Lord your God said to you, You will shepherd my people Israel, and you will become their ruler. Let's hold here
0: for a second. Their appeal to David is threefold. You are our family. That's the first part of their appeal. This, you're going to find out, is very much like a a husband proposing to a wife. Second, you are proficient. Third, you are the promised one. Now, as we get into these three things, a proposal, his proficiency, and him being the promised one, I think you're going to see that there's a pattern that looks exactly like building a house. I'd like to pick up regarding the first point, the proposal. I know that it's not something that you might see right away. That's because the NIV often utilizes a dynamic approach to its translation. In many cases, that technique is amazing. This is not one of them. We're going to show it to you on the screen in the LXX. In the LXX, listen to the the syntax is different here, but you'll be able to pick it up. And gathered together every man of Israel to David in Hebron, saying, Behold. Of your bones, somebody say bones. bones, and of your flesh, somebody say flesh. flesh, of your bones and of your flesh, we are. Wow. Now, in case you think that's trickery with the Greek, I want you to see it in the Masoretic text. Yeah, nobody can see that. I'll read it to you in the Masoretic text. And all Israel gathered to David, to Hebron, saying, behold, we are your bone." And flesh. While the phrase flesh and blood that NIV uses, it does convey familial ties. And that's why they used it. It's an English colloquialism. It fails to draw your mind to other references for Mitrashic comparison. The way that the first audience would have understood the phrase bone and flesh. Where's the first time in all of the Bible that you hear the phrase bone and In flesh. Oh, I'm so happy that y'all know that. Jennifer, why don't you read Genesis 2,
4: 23 through 24. Genesis 2, 23. The man said, this is
0: now bone of my bones. That's That's what I said on the day I found you.
4: Get it, girl.
0: That is one sexy grandma there. I'm sorry, I was distracted. What were you reading? Would you start again?
4: The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh.
3: Now, if you're a Jew and you're listening to this being proposed to David, this would be the first thing that would go into your mind. Yeah. Have you ever been at a wedding and you hear the same uh, vows that you hear at every other wedding? Yeah. It becomes familiar, doesn't it? Yeah. Well, as a Jew, they would have heard bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh, and they clearly would have understood that this is reminiscent of the original marriage language and is being employed because God is building a house through David. The Davidic king is being recognized as of the same family as the people, but more specifically, the people are like Eve, of the same bone and flesh as the groom David. The phrase bone and flesh is in the original text of Genesis twenty nine fourteen, where the context is Jacob and Laban discussing marriage to Rachel as well. It says the same thing there. In the Newer Testament, the occurrences of flesh and bone in the original text are also marriage-related and deeply intertwined with the Davidic imagery.
0: So we're going to go into a New Testament text for you, and we want to show you what happens when you go from Hebrew to Greek. We get a little different ordering, but this is where Paul takes his imagery from. In other words, Paul could look at the law, and look at something like Genesis 2. He could look at the account in 2 Samuel 5, he could look at the account in Chronicles 11 and he understood something that is not a brand new revelation out of the heavens. He's drawing it out of the Tanakh. Who will read Ephesians 5 for me? Is there a husband in the I house? Will. Got it. I'm sorry. Yes. This would be Ephesians 5 30 through 32.
3: A profound mystery but I'm talking about Christ.
0: And the now you may have read that for years and gone, "Oh well, it's a profound mystery because, you know, Paul said so. <laughs> Paul was looking at the wedding language of Second Samuel 5 and of Chronicles, the 11th chapter and of Genesis, and he understood a picture about the Davidic king. I want to show you this passage in the Textus Receptus. Again, uh, we're going to need to find pinch to Zoom.
1: Oh, oh yeah. Bro. Bro. Yeah! Bro. yeah. Bro. yeah. Bro.
0: Again, my highlights are misplaced. Uh, oh hey, hey, Pastor is on it. Yeah. Hey man, look at that. I'm loving that. Reading it from the Textus Receptus, which I know y'all do every day. For members we are body of his, flesh of his, and of his bones. The ordering gets a little bit um, different because the syntax is different in Hebrew and Greek, but it's the same language. Here he says flesh and bones, but he's quoting a Hebrew concept, bone and flesh. See, we are members of his body. We are his bride. But where does he get this idea He gets it from reading the very passages that we are... Paul didn't have the book of Ephesians to turn to. He was writing it. And he understood what we're telling you. Guys, this is the reason that we marry. When Gabriel married little Minnie Stevens here, she becomes like him. They were looking at the Davidic king and after having been under the reign of Saul, they wanted to be like him. So a proposal occurs. It's very much like a marriage, and it's based on them going, you are proficient at this. And by the way, God prophesied this. Let's do this. Okay, that is what's happening. This is true of every husband and wife. It's true of the Davidic king and his people. And Paul lets us in on a mystery that it is true of Christ and his church. The second
2: part of their appeal is fairly self-evident. If you've been with us, First and Second Samuel detail the events of David's proficiency. It's not within question. The man, when he was still a boy, was cutting the heads off of giants. And if you are going to have a king, have a military leader, have a general, have a husband, you want one that can protect you and lead you. See, this is very much so like a bride and a groom in every sense of the word. He was a man that was proficient in the call that God had placed upon him. Now, notice there's a third point of their appeal. The Lord God says to you, you will shepherd my people. See, there was a prophecy that had come forth before this. David was not just a replacement. He was not just a substitution for a failure. God didn't make a mistake and then just had to fix it somehow. He had ordained David from the beginning. While he was a boy, he was watching over his life, and he intended to raise him up for a very specific purpose. It's remarkable that the chronicler did not include any of this background on the subject. That's because the divinic dynasty had existed in his time, in his day, for roughly 20 kingships and almost 400 years
0: at that point. Somebody say "Wisdom's wisdom's proven right by our actions. He didn't feel the need to have to go back and establish it all because they had just lived through four centuries of it.
2: The record in Samuel actually illustrates David is anointed three times. We're going to just read them to you so that you have a little refresher. 1 Samuel 16, 13 says, So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the Spirit of the Lord came upon David in power. Samuel then went to Ramah. This is a lot like Jesus in Luke four eighteen, where the Spirit anoints him and it's visible to those that are around. 2 Samuel 2, verse 4 then the men of Judah came to Hebron, and there they anointed David, king over the house of Judah. This is the second time, much like in Mark 14, 8, where Jesus has an anointing that takes place. 2 Samuel 5, 3, the third time, he is anointed finally as the king over all of Israel. We will see that anointing happen with the son of David, where he unites all of Israel and all of those that have been brought together. David is a shadow and a type of Christ that we see demonstrated. But from the chronicler's perspective, this is clearly demonstrated already. He could see that the hand of God had been on the house of David and had preserved them to his very day after going through exile.
3: See, the chronicler skips all of the history that went into this moment in order to present David for the first time in his record as the husband of Israel, the fully anointed, and fully king-builder of God's house and the Davidic dynasty. That is the point of putting it right there in front of you without going through all of the details. I want to step on that for a minute. Stop on it. Pause for a second.
0: We start with Adam, and we come to the death of Saul. And as soon as Saul dies, the chronicler is presenting the husband of Israel, the king of Israel, fully anointed. He doesn't go through the time at Hebron. He doesn't go through it the full king of Israel, and the builder of the Davidic dynasty. He's presenting Messiah as he's presenting David.
3: And the same thing happens to us. As soon as we die to our Saul-like sinful nature, the Messiah is presented to us that we receive him. There are a lot of details that are omitted in Saul's house and as well as David's house. That's interesting, isn't it? It presents two of them. Right after another in a stark contrast so that you can clearly see the differences. That is why they are so close together and all these details are omitted. Last time when we did First and Second Samuel, we went weeks and weeks through details. That's not what Chronicles is doing. Chronicles is putting right side by side so that you could see the fruit of two households. Saul's house scattered its sons because of sin and defeat. While David's house will gather its sons because of righteousness and victory. Amen. Somebody say amen. amen. Yeah, you couldn't see a better tale
0: of two houses. And I hope it encourages you that this is the story the apostles are looking at when they're writing to you letters like the Ephesians. Yeah. Yeah. Gave pick up in verse
5: three. When all the elders of Israel had come to David, King David, at Hebron, he made a compact. With them at Hebron before the Lord. And they anointed David king over Israel, as the Lord had promised through Samuel.
0: I don't think there's many skeptics out there. Y'all know us better than that. (laughs) But if there's anybody that thinks that we made too much of the wedding language earlier, the word compact here is Strong's number 1285. It's Brit. It means covenant.
6: He showed up.
0: There was a proposal, and a covenant ensued, and we are reading a war story of Israel, but we are also reading the wedding story of Israel. Maybe we should go to verse 4.
5: David and all the Israelites marched to Jerusalem, that is, Jebus. The Jebusites who lived there said to David, You will not get in here. Nevertheless, David captured the fortress of Zion, the city of David. Come on, read verse 6 as well for me. David had said, whoever leads the attack on the Jebusites will become commander-in-chief. Joab, son of Zeruah, went up first, and so he received the command. Saints, so that we
2: can connect the concepts that are happening here. The concept that is being conveyed (laughs) is that a righteous house is being built through marriage like a covenant that will produce Sons. You remember Psalm 127? Those sons cause you to not be ashamed at the enemy's gates. They're used in warfare and in weaponry. They're offensive. These verses are included to help you contrast Saul's house that lost territory. Israel was scattered, and then they lost territory. And the lives of the sons of David's house that gained territory and promoted their sons. They were increasing in strength. Remember, Jerusalem is where the city of God is enthroned. And will be enthroned forever. Psalm 9, uh, chapter 9, verse 11 speaks about this. If you read all of Psalm 48, it's just a few verses. It tells you to consider its citadels, its ramparts. David was taking the land that God would be enthroned on with his sons. Hey, you want
0: another fun note? Just, yeah. just to do it because we can. Yeah. The Bible presents Jerusalem as God's throne. Do you think he decided it was his throne at some point in history? Or do you think that it was always destined to be his throne, but he was looking for a man who would do it? Saul was sinful. You could think that the promise of God had failed because he didn't have Jerusalem. But God's promise didn't fail because he raised up a man who would make it his throne. Come on.
3: Let's pick up in verse 7 through verse 9, if
5: you would. Get more. David then took up residence in the fortress, and so it was called the city of David. He built up the city around it, from the supporting terraces to the surrounding wall, while Joab restored the rest of the city. And David became more and more powerful, because the Lord Almighty was with him. Come
3: on, man, I love this verse. That Hebrew right there, Lord Almighty, can anyone guess what it is? That is Yahweh, the God of the armies of heaven. Come on. Now think about that for a second. I love this verse. I'm not going to go too far into it. But David was a warrior, man. And because he was with the warlike God, the God of heaven's armies, he learned how to follow out the Lord's instructions. He learned how to inherit what the Lord was giving him because he knew how to follow God's commands. Now think about that in the light of Psalm 127 for a second. Sons are arrows born in the hands of a man's youth. Okay? David is following after the warrior God, and he is being given sons in the land that he is taking, and he will not give it up. This illustrates that the armies of heaven were working in conjunction with David's armies on the earth. Now, I want
0: you to catch the layers here for just a second. And I I hope we're not losing you. I I, I mean, I hope there's at least a few of you who get it.
1: I'm here.
0: There is a marriage between the king of Israel and the people of Israel. And what it produces are sons that win in battle. Come on. Just like Psalm 127 says. But there is also a marriage between the heavens and the earth. And it is produced. Sons on earth doing the will of heaven and winning in battle. Yeah. Yeah. Your marriage covenant is supposed to produce sons who do God's will.
6: Amen.
0: The marriage covenant of Christ is supposed to produce sons who do God's will. Amen. You see why Saul has to die? You see why Saul can't reign anymore? You see why we got to get on with the Davidic reign? While we're still playing footsies with Saul, we're not advancing against the gates of the enemy. Your biggest battle should not be the things that you want to do. Your biggest battle should
3: be doing the things God has told you to do. That's a good word. Now, what we want to draw your attention to is the fact that David became more and more powerful.
6: Yeah, he did. Was it because he
3: was situated in a fine citadel like Jerusalem or was it something else? Something else. Must be something else. I'm going to hand out a few passages on this topic. Who wants to read? Rob, you get Acts 7, 9 through 10. Cody, John 3, 2. Gabe Southey, Acts 10, 38. JJ, Mark 3, 14 through 15. Brentone, John 14, 23, just 23. Rick. Rick. 1 John 1, 6 through just verse 6. Uh, Carlos, Romans 6, verse 5. And let's see, we got Bonnie, Romans 8, 32. Who else? Steve Thomas, 1 Corinthians 6, 16 and 17. Uh, Marlon, 2 Corinthians 13, 4. Ephesians 2, 6, uh, Nolan, Colossians 3, 4, Micaiah, 1 Thessalonians five ten, verse 10, and Justin Linton, you're going to read Revelation seventeen fourteen. This is on the topic of why David grew stronger and stronger. It's because God was with him. Now, we, we're going to ask you to do something. There are people that listen to
0: these recordings, particularly pastors in the one association. They listen to them while they're driving around, being bivocational and doing all of those things. And the number one thing that they complain about when giving them this kind of revelation, still, the number one thing they complain about is um, when people read, we can't hear them. Would you all fix that problem for me tonight?
1: Yes.
2: Mike is right here project like men and women of God, we're aiming for that microphone from the back of the room with Marlon and Baj. We're going to hit it. Oh. By the sheer volume of scriptures, can you under, deduce that we really, really are passionate about the subject
0: we're about to oh, yeah. go through? Yes. Yes. Oh, yes, You're about to be too. Amen.
2: Whoever is Acts 7, 9 through 10, read it for me. Because the patriarchs were jealous of Joseph, they sold him as a slave into Egypt, but God
5: was with him and rescued him from all his troubles. He gave Joseph wisdom and enabled him to gain the goodwill of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So he
2: made him ruler over Egypt and all his powers. Come on now. Have you ever wondered what made Joseph so powerful? Why is it that these things transpired in his life and yet it never had any hold over him? So that's an important question for us to ask when we want to accomplish the will of God with our lives. When you want to succeed in the mission for which you were sent for, why you're on the earth. It was because he had obtained the favor of God and God was with him. Nothing else. It wasn't because of the way that he grew up. It wasn't the way that he was introduced to Pharaoh. It wasn't because of the living conditions he had. It was because he had the favor of the Almighty and God was with
3: him. That is what we need, saints. It's got John 3, 2.
2: He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one can perform the miracles The miraculous signs you are doing if God were not with
3: him. Now, Jesus didn't look very successful in the eyes of men, but I promise you, he grew greater and greater. Not because he was the Son of God in the flesh, not because he was sinless and perfect from birth. He became greater and greater because God was with him. He was with God. He submitted to God. He submitted his will to his Father, even though in times of difficulty, and because he did that, God was with him. And he grew greater and greater. Who's got Acts 10, 38?
5: How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power. And how he went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil. Because God was with him.
0: Now I know some of you may not like this. Jesus Christ was not extraordinarily powerful because he was divine. He was extraordinarily powerful because the divine was with him, Amen. and he did whatever the Lord told him to do. Yes. He operated as an anointed man, being led by the Lord the same way that you're supposed to. Come on, now, the best part of this is just like David yielded to the father, and then those in his kingdom learned from him and united with him, and they became like David, who was like the Father. Watch what the Davidic son does in Mark 3:14.
6: He appointed 12, designating them apostles, that they might be with him and that they might sin, and that He might send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons.:
0: Jesus was with the Father, but the disciples were with Jesus. Who was with the Father? What this tells us is when you're building a house, all that has to happen is there has to actually be a uniting between you and the Father. And then your sons will become like you to the extent you were like your Father. Oh, that's how discipleship works. That's how it worked in the kingdom of Israel. That's how it will always work. This is how the Lord builds a house.
2: Let's hear from a Talmudim in the house with John
5: 14, 23. Jesus replied, if anyone loves me, he will obey my teaching. My father will love him, and he will come to him and make our
2: home with him. Come on now. Sometimes we hear this language in John, and it can feel a bit confusing for a moment or two. It's because we are speaking about a kind of unity that is a little bit beyond what we understand. When you think about a man that is one man and yet has three parts— Jesus is saying, I want with my sons, with my Talmudim, with those who will obey my teachings, I want to be completely unified with them. Bring them into my home in the same way that I am with the Father so that we might all be one. That is where real power is found. When we are brought into the Father's presence because of our unity with Jesus Christ. That comes from our obedience to his way of life, his commands. See, you have no power outside of it. But inside of that, You have all power. Gabriel Arius is anointed for all things inside of God. Amen. Joe is anointed for all things Amen. We are pressing deeper into the Father and the Son and building a spiritual house on earth that will overcome the
3: enemy. Who's got 1 John 1, 6?
5: If we say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie. And we do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from
3: all sin. Amen. Man, I love John for this reason. It's like he had the same problem that we see all around us. People are claiming to have fellowship with him. They are claiming to be married to him. And yet they walk like a divorced bride. They do not walk in his authority. They do not walk in his character. And John is saying... If you walk like that, you are not married to him. You are not with him, and he is not with you. Mm. Living by the truth is proof that you are in that marriage covenant with him. Right. Living and doing as he did is your ketubah. Amen.
2: You know, I think Justin might have been kind when he said like a divorce bride. A woman that runs off constantly <laughs> to Saul's kingdom <laughs> for a benefit that she's desiring. Pastor Matthew says, prostitute. Yes. Ooh. Consider Romans 6, verse 5 with us about what a righteous bride should look like. Amen.
5: For if we have been united with him in, the, in a death like this, we shall certainly be united with him in a
1: resurrection one, like this. One, one.
2: Yep. If we have been united with him like this in death. <laughs> See, what it really means to be married to Christ is that we undertake every aspect of our husband's calling. So you're not really unified, and really married when you choose the things you do and do not like about your husband. See, what we are called to do is unify with Christ in a manner that is unto death, that is every area of Him. And then you can be certain that you will be united with Him in the resurrection. Does somebody want to be certain in the house of God? Yes! Yes. Just like any marriage, you must be with Him through difficult and prosperous times or you're not actually with Him. But we have confidence when we are with Him that way. Oh, who's got Romans 8,
6: 32? He who did not spare his own son, but I gave him up for all of us. How, will, how we will not also along with him graciously give us all things.
0: Oh, I love this. If you are with him, as in married to him, come on, I want to get with him. <laughs> if you are married to him, you will receive everything that he received. That's how marriage works. Ask my wife, what is mine is mine, and what is thine is mine. (laughs) If you are really with him, then you have everything that he has. So if Saul is still stomping on you, it's because you are not really with the Davidic king. If you get with the Davidic king, you will have the same power that he has. This is not about willpower. It's not about strength. It's not about macho bravado. It's actually about identifying fully in every way with the Christ. When he's your husband, you have everything that he
3: has. And friends, we want you to have it. That's a dynasty that'll last centuries. 1 Corinthians 6, 16 through 17. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute one with her body.
0: For it is said, the two will become one flesh. Man, that's good. But he who unites himself with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Come on!
3: Man, there is so many things you can unite with. But the one thing that will produce lasting fruit for you is to unite yourself with the Lord and the Davidic king. When you do that, you are One, Echad, with him in spirit. That means his spirit is speaking to you things. You are hearing his commands. He is giving you directions and you are following. When you are flesh of his flesh and bone of his bone, you get to be one with him in spirit. That means a spirit of power. That means not a spirit of fear, but a spirit of self-discipline. A spirit to walk out a godly life.
2: Who Somebody excited about that power living you in an increasing manner this year. Yes! Who has 2 Corinthians 13, verse 4? Read it with some authority. For to be sure, he was crucifying in weakness. Yet, he lived by
5: God's power. Amen. Otherwise, we are weak in him. Yet, by God's power, we will live with him to serve you.
2: See, Marlon is a man that I can see Christ's power at work in him. In fact, it's in an increasing measure because he's becoming more and more unified with Christ. I remember when he first walked in the doors and he was being impacted by the gospel. But as his marriage, as his union with Christ has grown, that same power lives within him in an increasing manner where he's serving the King of Kings, accomplishing the will of God. He is his son, he is his soldier, and he is his bride all in one. Let's take a look at Ephesians 2, verse 6.
6: And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus.
0: Come on, man. Look, when you're with your husband, when you're with the Messiah, when you're with the Davidic king, you become more and more powerful with him. You are his spouse and his kingdom is your kingdom are you trying to put little Sauls in your life on the throne with Jesus the Christ? Because it's never going to happen. Kill Saul so that you can get married to Jesus. Amen. And as you're married to him, all that is his becomes yours, even his
3: throne. Amen. Who's got Colossians 3, 4? When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Come on, man. For better or for worse, when you are united with Christ, the Davidic son, when you go with your husband through the, the, the lows of the lows, through the valley of the shadow of death, you know what happens when you share in the darkness, then you also get to share in the glory. You get to share in the successes. With your husband, when he stands and he's revealed to the entire world and revealed as the son of all glory, the firstborn of creation, guess who gets to appear with him in glory? Those that unite with him. Who's
2: got first Thessalonians 5 verse 10?
0: I do. Who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him.
2: Man, it's good to be awake in the house of God. It's good to be awake in the natural. It's good to be awake in the spiritual. We're not going to leave anybody sleeping this evening in Saul's kingdom. We want to live fully in Christ. Like any groom, he expects us to live with him. Yeah. Not to visit him occasionally. Not to look pretty on a church service. Not to look pretty
0: on a date. He expects us to live with him. Not just nighttime prayer visits. All day long. Morning and night.
2: David and Jesus went through hell figuratively to become the king and groom. They had to endure something. They paid a price for what they wanted. Man, there's a redhead that's not here tonight because she's taking care of children. But I paid a price because I wanted her. I saw something that I believed would build a house. See, Christ has done the same thing with you. He believes that he can build a house out of you, and he's paid a price for you. Jesus went through that same kind of progress, that same kind of process for the entire world. If David was owed fidelity as an earthly king who had to pay an earthly cost, how much more
0: so Jesus Christ owed fidelity from us? Come on, man. How much more so? Fidelity is everything. I want to read to you one last verse on this subject, or rather have you read it. Who had Revelation 17, 14? All right.
5: They will make war against the Lamb. But the Lamb will overcome them because he is the Lord of Lords and King of Kings. And with them will be his called, chosen, and faithful followers. Sounds like fidelity. With
0: him will be his called, chosen, and faithful followers. Soon, in our chapters, David will make war on the Philistines. And those who are faithful to him will have victory with him. Revelation makes the exact same prediction regarding Jesus Christ. As we move forward, keep Psalm 127 in mind, because this is a tale of two houses. David was great because he united with Yahweh Sabaoth in all of his actions. Not some of his actions, all of them. David's men became great, Because they united with David as he united with God. Did you see the picture? This stands in stark contrast with the house of Saul. Saul was death to his sons. Sin always is. The house that God builds, in fact, the house that God is building right here, is defined by union with God that creates sons that are every bit as supernatural As their fathers. Amen. The remainder of this chapter, we are moving on to the Davidic son's crowning achievement. Does anybody know what the crown of the house of David actually is? His mighty men. men. Let's pick up in verse 10.
5: These were the chiefs of David's mighty men. They, together with all Israel, gave his kingship strong support to extend it over the whole land. As the Lord had promised. Mm.
3: Come on, this is exciting. We're about to read about David's Giborim hayalim, his great warriors that were with him. But something about these great warriors, you don't read much about them in previous chapters, do you? That's because David built these men into who they were. David built these men, and by David being united with God, by God being with David... These men joined him and he made them into who they were. Yeah, I I, I want to say that again for you because
0: y'all are busy taking notes and maybe even wondering what you're going to eat tonight. I I want you to get this. David built his men into who they were. They then helped him build his kingdom into what it was or would become. It's the same way now. Jesus Christ builds you into the man that he wants you to be and you help him build his kingdom
3: into the kingdom that he wants it to be. Good word. Yeah. David's house was also defined by unity under the promises of the Lord, whereas Saul's house was defined by defying the word of the Lord and dissension. <laughs> Lord. What defines your house? Let's look at David's jewels and his crown. Notice that they were David's mighty men moving right along gave <laughs> okay, pick up in uh, verse 11 and read down to 19
5: this is the list of david's mighty men joshabim a hakmonite was chief of the officers he raised his spear against 300 men whom he killed in one encounter next to him was eleazar son of dodai the ahonite one of the three mighty men He was with David at Pashtamim when the Philistines gathered there for battle. At a place where there was a field full of barley, the troops fled from the Philistines, but they took their stand in the middle of the field. They defended it and struck down, struck the Philistines down. Hmm. And the Lord brought about a great victory. Like barley better than lentils? Yeah. Three of the thirty chiefs came down to David to the rock at the cave of Adullam, where a band of Philistines was encamped in the valley of Rephraim. At that time, David was in the stronghold, and the Philistine garrison was at Bethlehem. David longed for water and said, Oh, that someone might get me a drink of water from the well near the gate of Bethlehem. So the three broke through the Philistine lines, drew water from the well near the gate of Bethlehem, And carried it back to David. But he refused to drink it. Instead, he poured it out before the Lord. God forbid that I should do this, he said. Should I drink the blood of these men who went at the risk of their lives? Because they risked their lives to bring it back, David would not drink it. Such were the exploits of the three mighty men.
0: Come on, is anybody excited about this? Yes! Yes. Now, there are so many things we could talk about. Why does... Samuel say lentils, and Chronicles says barley. Well, clearly because you can make beer with barley. You could wonder, you could wonder, why on earth does David want water from that well? Maybe he just wanted a taste of that moment from where he was born of heaven. These are not things we're going to go into tonight, because we are describing David's crown. We're not going to talk about small numerical differences that are easily explained by anybody with half of a clue that wants to see the truth. We want to show you something better. Do you want to go on to what's better? Yes. Saints,
2: these mighty men are extraordinary. They are examples of what it looks like to serve the Davidic son. Now, if you go back to your notes in Samuel, which we can help you find. We define their names. We go through who they are. What we want to focus on is why they're being emphasized. We want to emphasize the point that the chronicler wanted to emphasize. He's making a statement. He's describing the story of the house of David. It's a narrative. We have the house of Saul being abolished, dead, gone. Then we have David being married. We have him reuniting the people. We have him bringing about a victory in Jerusalem. And then his sons that are his crown. These are David's mighty fighting men. They're products of David's very kingship, his discipleship. This is what his house and his home
0: produced. Yeah. Real quick. What do you hope to hear right after you hear someone was married? Kids. Kids. Yes. Kids. The chronicler is following that pattern. You see that David gets married to Israel. You see that God and David get a home in Jerusalem.
3: And immediately you see what that house produced. Come on. Now let's talk about these men for a little bit. Because the character and what these men did reflect on who David really is. What they did reflects on, on what David means to them. Don't you think it's kind of crazy that they went out of their way just for a cup of water? I mean, some might say yes. Some are saying no. You see... In the middle of a war, David just makes a statement. I just want, man, if I could have a cup of water from this place that is surrounded by the enemy, and he doesn't send a whole troop, he doesn't send a whole battalion out to get this cup of water, because that'd be a little bit crazy, wouldn't it? But these three men, he doesn't command them. He doesn't command them, go and get that from me. He just says, I want it. And what do these mighty men do? They say, I'm not going to stop until I get what my king wants, even if... It cost me my life. I'm going behind enemy lines. I am going to be surrounded by enemies. But all I want to do is give my king what he wants. Do you
0: want to give him what he wants? Or are you waiting for a
3: command that you must obey? Come on, now. These men were willing to risk their lives. Risk their lives. Not because of a command. But because God... Was with David. Now come on. Think about that for a second. Is there anybody in your life. That you know God is with them. And you would be willing to risk your life for them at a moment. I'm going to tell you there's a few in my book. There's a few in my book that are so precious to me. That I will die on a spot for them. I will die in a second. They would clearly risk their lives for David. Because they knew who he was. Because they were married To him, he was building into them something that was worth something to them. It was precious. Now, think of this. Did he drink the water? No. No. What did he do? He poured it out. You see, they would they would risk their lives for him because they love him. They're married to him. But you know what you want to know what his reciprocation was? He would rather lay his life down than waste theirs because they are his sons. They mean something to him. You see, He built them up. He raised them like sons in the house of God. He raised them into what they are, and they are precious to Him. It is the same with Jesus and us. We are willing to risk our lives, not because we have to, not because He commands that we do, not because the Scripture says it, but because He is worth it, and we love Him, and we're married to Him. But you want to know something? He's already proven that He has laid down His life, For you as well. He would not want to waste your life because he is married to
0: you. So I want to help y'all keep the shadows and types correct. David marries a nation just like Jesus does. The marriage between David and the nation and Jesus and the nation produces sons. The Bible refers to these men as mighty men. Come on. It's because of their exploits. It's not because of what they believed about David. (laughs) It's because of what they did in David's name. They set out to accomplish something for him. Their their exploits are actually biblical examples of discipleship. They not only survived Saul. That would be minimal. They surpassed him and they went on to great exploits. You know what we're trying to get you to do tonight we're trying to get you to see the great exploits that are yours. we got to get past Saul, and we've got to move on to great exploits. Amen. The Bible presents these men as David's crowning achievement. I want to give you a few words from Psalm 127 again so that you can hear it. Like arrows in the hands of a warrior are sons born in one's youth. See, you don't have to go kill the enemy yourself. You send an arrow. And that arrow is every bit as supernatural as the archer who sent it. You don't have to go yourself. Jesus doesn't have to get off the throne and do it himself. He sends you. Amen. Blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. They will not be put to shame when they contend with the enemy at the gates of hell. Yeah. That is what is being presented here. I think it's reasonable
2: that for those of us in the room, we read a passage out of Isaiah 49 that should be familiar to many Amen. of you. Come on. We're going to pick up in the 17th verse, and we're going to read through 19. Your sons hasten back to you. Mm. Those who laid you waste depart from you. Souls dead. Amen. Lift up your eyes. Lift up your eyes and look around. All your sons gather and come to you.
5: Amen. Somebody
2: said that's a good sight. That's
5: a good, that's good sight.
2: sight. As surely as I live, declares the Lord, you will wear them all as ornaments. Yeah. You will put them on like a bride. Yes. Though you were ruined and made desolate and your land laid waste when you were in the kingdom of Saul, now you will be too small for your people. Those who devoured you will be far away. This is the last mention of Saul in Chronicles. He's dead. He's gone. It is teaching us how to walk rightly in our historical context in the life of David. It describes Saul scattering the people of God. But David and his house and his victories regathered the sons. We're in a state in our world where the sons of God have been scattered and diminished. We live in a watered-down world, but what we need are real sons that are gathered Amen. back to Amen. their purpose. Amen. That's when we begin to see change on the physical earth. Sinful Saul is no more. Yes. Oh,
1: come on, say it again!
2: Sinful Saul is no more. Yes. This is the Davidic dynasty that will never pass away, that we are partaking of now. Yes. David is the groom Messiah, and Israel is the bride. The warriors are the sons of the kingdom, and you were the grafton that was the mystery. But praise the living God, we're in it together. That we all are sitting there in the same room worshiping, able to study His Word, and then go implement it upon the earth. We said tonight no more living in Saul's kingdom. There is no reason for you to revisit that, there's no reason for you to cross back into that life. Live to David and reign
0: with Christ. Be His arrow and make others. Do you like to look into the law, the prophets, the writings? See where the apostles drew their inspiration to write the Brit Hadashah? I love it. Are you sons of this house? Yes. Let me share a passage that's close to my heart. Isaiah 49 and verse 25. But this is what the Lord says. Yes, captives will be taken from warriors. Come on. And plunder retrieved from the fierce. I will contend with those who contend with you. And your children will I save. Amen. I will make your oppressors eat their own flesh. They will be drunk on their own blood as with wine. Then all mankind will know that I, the Lord, am your Savior, your Redeemer, your Mighty One of Jacob. This may be very much what John had in mind when he's seeing Revelation 19. Come on. I will deal with those that have contended with the sons of this house, is what God says. Because David was united with God, God fought to establish David's house. Amen. God gave David sons that would fight for him. David cherished those sons so much that he would die for them. Biblical discipleship always results. In mutual, somebody say mutual. mutual. Mutual sacrifice between fathers and sons, between teachers and talmudim, between brothers and brothers. If there is not mutual sacrifice, you never become a son of the house. Wow. You sit around and line and complain about cliques because you're still sitting in
3: soul situation. I want to read to you John 15, verse 12 through 15. Jesus says, my command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that he laid down his life for his friends. Now I have to think something about these men and David. They were united in such a way that they weren't just David the king and his subservient mighty men. These were sons in David's house. I have to think that because they were united with him, they were united with him, one in spirit, and they became a little bit more than that. They became friends. Yeah, for That's sure. what happens when biblical discipleship actually is occurring in your life. Amen. You become friends with your fathers. You become friends with your, ta- your, your rabbis. You become friends with your teachers. And there's a mutual sacrifice that begins to form. Verse 14, you are my friends if you do what I command. Come on. Do what I command. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends for everything that I have learned from my father. I have made known to you. Can you see David saying that to those mighty men right there? This is what happens when God begins to build a house. When you are with God, God is with you. He builds your house with sons. And those sons learn how to do war like you and you develop a mutual relationship with them where they are willing to die for you and you are willing to die for them. Come on, say, I want my house to be built God's way. I want to raise up sons who are willing to die just like I'm willing to die. It's not enough for me to say it's not enough for me to stand here and say I'm willing to die for Jesus. I want to hear that from my son's mouths whenever they grow up. I want to hear them say, I am willing to die just like you're willing to. Put your hands in the air.
0: Everybody put your left hand in your lap. Now just your pointer finger towards the sky. Now land on verse 20. (laughs) Now that you're on verse 20, slide all the way down through the end of the chapter. Are you seeing it? Jennifer read it, and it cannot be improved upon, so we will not do it again. (laughs) In closing, people always struggle to number the fighting men and their chiefs. Some say there's 37. Some say there's 39. We are going to get to that, and we'll do it tonight. But for now, we want to consider a different truth. It's going to come from John 10 and beginning in verse 14. I'm going to read it to you.
2: Consider the language in light of what we've heard about the son of David. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep, and my sheep know me. What was David anointed as? The shepherd over God's people, over Israel. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. Saints, does that not remind you of the relationship that you see with David and his people and David and his men? They were willing to lay their lives down, and something about this sacrificial nature was enticing. I have other sheep that are not of this pen. Amen for that. I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice, and there will be one flock and one shepherd. That is the Davidic son. Men were drawn to David and to the Davidic son because of a selfless, sacrificial action in life that their house displays, It displayed it then, and it continues to display it into eternity, especially in contrast to Saul, which is how this was set up, where you see the fruit of Saul's house and that his sons died because of his selfishness. Where our good shepherd, that very son of David, his sacrifice is what draws us in and causes us to love him. It causes us to have a relationship that is more than just a distant monarchy, but we now call ourselves his friends. Man, that is such a beautiful truth. It's hard to grasp. I know you hear it many, many times, but the fact that he calls you a friend and you know his business, a mortal man, he knows you and has laid down his life for you so that you might have that relationship. The sheep outside of the pen want to be liberated from Saul, liberated from Sheol, from the very grave itself. They're going to have to see a mutually sacrificial behavior and us and our house to be drawn to the son of David. You are his sons on this earth. You are his ambassadors. That sacrifice that drew you into him, they will have to see it demonstrated brother to brother. They will have to see it demonstrated from us to the pagans. They will have to see it to be able to rally to the son of David and kill Saul in their own life. Do you want to help bring that about?
3: Yes. Guys, the fighting unit always had 30. When you're reading the comparisons in Samuel and Chronicles, there's always a certain number that is set. That is the number, but men came and went. There are always men that went out from that number, and there are always men that got included in that number. God will always have his number, just like he will always have 40 on the ice. He will have his number as a testimony to the house he is building. The real question tonight is, will you be in that number? Will you be in that number? Now, think of this for a second. Only three went and got David that cup of water. Why only three? I don't know. Could there have been more? I don't know. But what I know is this, is that if you are willing to go, you are always able to stand up and say, I will not be cast out. I will not be left out of that number. I will stand and I will be included at all costs, no matter what.
0: You know what else the Bible says? There is a full number of Gentiles that he will include. Now maybe you don't know what that number is, Hmm. but there is a number. Will you be in that number? I have another question for you. Will you live in such a way that your life inspires others to join that number? Would you please stand to your feet?